Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. An Australian maker of electric vehicle chargers is building its first factory in the U.S. President Biden welcomes the investment, touting it as an achievement of his Made in America plan. The Vice President and Senate Democrats today are reminding parents not to miss out on the second half of payments from the expanded child tax credit. The reminder comes as the Senate is still grappling with how to extend these benefits while the Build Back Better bill remains stalled in Congress. Republican voices have fought against mask mandates for school children. Now the movement's gaining Democratic support, enough to pass a bill to ban mask mandates in Virginia. A pastor was censored when he tried to share how he walked away from homosexuality. And now he's fighting to get his case to the Supreme Court. A U.S.-born sports star has become one of Team China's most popular athletes. This after she won China a gold medal, sending the admiration into overdrive. President Biden today announced a major investment in electric vehicle chargers. Tritium, an Australian company that makes EV chargers, will build its first U.S. factory in Tennessee. We'll be opening a U.S. manufacturing facility in Tennessee, expected to begin production this fall. This facility will have an initial capacity to build more than 10,000 fast charger units per year, with room to expand to 30,000. Later this week, we're going to announce a state-by-state -state allocation for $5 billion in the funding for these chargers. So states can start making plans to build out what will become a national network of electric vehicle chargers. The factory will open in Lebanon, Tennessee, near Nashville. And the White House says it will create 500 local jobs. The infrastructure bill passed last year includes $7 billion to fund the electric vehicle supply chain and another $7.5 billion for a national, nationwide public EV charging network. Biden touts this new investment as an achievement of his plan to make more in America and rebuild American manufacturing. The administration has set a goal to make sure at least half of all cars sold in the U.S. are electric by 2030. And if you're a parent, government officials today are reminding you to file your taxes. Because if not, you could miss getting the second half of your payments from the expanded child tax credit. This reminder comes as the Senate is still grappling with how to make these extra benefits last longer. Right now, the extension of the enhanced child tax credit is still stalled in Congress because it's tied to Biden's Build Back Better bill, which has not garnered enough support to pass. NTD's Melina Wisecup reports for us. If you are eligible for the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit, we want you to get those credits. This expanded tax credit was passed in the American Rescue Plan last year, temporarily increasing the child tax credit from $2,000 to up to $3,600. And some of that money was already dished out to families in advance. But you still need to file taxes this year to get the second half of that money. So remember, you are owed more, but you still need to file your taxes. And if you didn't file taxes last year, you can still get the full amount this year. You can also still get the $1,400 checks for pandemic relief if you missed it last year. This temporary boost was originally passed as pandemic relief. 
but Democrats now want to keep them for good. Every single person up here thinks we should make these changes to our to our tax code permanent. But this has drawn strong pushback from all Republicans and one Democrat. One concern is that the expanded benefits don't require parents to prove they're working to get the extra tax cuts. Most of the folks are working people. There are some who cannot work. They are disabled. I mentioned grandparents. What, what are the work requirements for the tax cuts given to the riches of the rich in 2017? Where are those work requirements? Without an extension, the credit will revert back to $2,000 per child instead of the three to $3,600. Democrats have not yet passed the expanded benefits because it's included in that stalled Build Back Better bill. Senator Booker today told NTD they're talking about finding another way to get it done. There's going to be a lot of strategies that are going to be talked about because of the urgency of this policy. Um, right now, my focus is Build Back Better. It is the vehicle that we think could still move. That's my focus, but clearly this is of such importance that we're going to look at a lot of different ways to get this done. Considering that Build Back Better bill is stalled in the Senate, the question becomes if this child tax credit expansion is important enough to Senate Democrats to pass separately from that Build Back Better bill. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is asking a U.S. District Court to block the Pentagon's vaccine requirement for Texas National Guard members. The governor has filed a motion for a preliminary injunction. He argues that President Biden is attempting to undermine his chain of command over the Texas National Guard and that it will put Texans in danger. Abbott has ordered the National Guard under his command not to punish anyone for refusing the COVID-19 vaccine. But he says the Pentagon has nevertheless attempted to punish unvaccinated guardsmen by cutting off their pay, barring their participation in drills, and threatening to discharge them from the Texas National Guard. Last month, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin wrote, wrote letters to Abbott and other Republican governors. Austin said that he has the authority to enforce the mandate for all members of the National Guard. The governor vows to use every legal tool to defend the Texas National Guard members. And a wave of Democratic support for optional masking has reached Virginia. A bill's been passed in its Democrat majority Senate that would make mask wearing optional for students. NTD's Miguel Moreno gives us the story. Parents have fought hard against mask mandates enforced by Virginia school districts. The governor's banned the mandatory policy, but dozens of defiant schools have brushed off his order. Now the state Senate has passed a bill proposed by Democratic Senator Chad Peterson that'll make mask wearing absolutely optional for students. In a statement, Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin lauded Peterson for inserting the mask optional portion of the bill. Youngkin added, I look forward to signing the bill when it comes to my desk. Before that, the bill must pass the Republican majority House, but it is expected to reach the governor's desk. Virginia is the latest state to move away from mandatory masking in schools with Democrat support. Oregon, New Jersey, Connecticut and Delaware are set to end their mandates either this month or next. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. In cities across the U.S., outdoor dining helped restaurants stay open amid government-imposed lockdowns during the pandemic. The structures have pros and cons, and now Americans, America's most densely populated city might make them permanent. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from Manhattan. 
outdoor dining structures like this one helped many restaurants across New York City to survive during the pandemic. And the number of these sheds skyrocketed. The Bronx only had 30 before the city lockdown. Now it's over 650. A lot of people seem to like him, and these sheds might be here to stay. When the pandemic started, New York City implemented new rules that made it easier to get a permit for an outdoor dining structure. On Tuesday, the City Council held an online hearing and proposed a bill that would keep current procedures for outdoor dining structures in place. The program not only provided a lifeline to small businesses, it also saved over 100,000 jobs. But there are downsides to outdoor dining. There are legitimate concerns about noise on blocks that mix commercial activity with residences. Many outdoor dining structures are flimsy or sited haphazardly, and more than a few pose a hazard to safe cycling. But these are fixable flaws. Critics also mentioned an increase in garbage, rats, and people sleeping in the sheds. But the city is confident that solutions will be found that fit for everyone. We will listen to those restaurant owners. We will listen to the community. We will address the concern. So far, it looks like most city council members are in favor of the bill. The mayor said he was also for it. Arian Pastar, NTD News, New York. Today's Stand Up for Recovery Day. And elected officials in New York City met with the Brooklyn Community Recovery Center. They discussed how to better help people heal from drug addictions. NTD's Jason Perry has a story. It is just, you just peel it, place it, press so simple and you could save somebody's life like that. Elected officials held a roundtable meeting with virtual attendees and heard from the workers at Phoenix House, also known as Brooklyn Community Recovery Center, to see what help they need. When they get, when re people get to a certain stage in recovery and they're ready to try to return back to work, opportunities are far and in between. Sometimes the only opportunity that is there is to come back into your industry and try to give back to others but it's not necessarily best place for them. I'm really glad you mentioned that, Rodney, and I would love to talk more um, about what your experience has been. Well, thank you. I would love to pursue that conversation more. CEO and president of Phoenix House, Anne-Marie Foster, wants to make sure the opioid settlement funds get sent to their center. Assemblywoman Latrice Walker asked Foster to voice her concerns in a letter, and then she said she would get it to the governor. Local city council members also showed up to join the event. Making sure that we start talking about and treating drug use with care and compassion um, is what I would really like to see us do as a city um, and, and as government moving forward. You know, I, I have often thought about Michael K. Williams. One of the main topics was removing the stigma of getting help for substance abuse. And to address that issue, city council member Sandy Nurse said you can't put the recovery centers on the outskirts of cities away from everyone. She said the help needs to be within the community. Volunteers gave advice and encouragement. While it seems simple, it's actually one of the very hardest things because now you have to switch up. You have to change your associations. You have to get with people. It is, is essential that I've found on a personal level, my own recovery, to be with people who think and feel a positive about the person. That there's a voice out there for us. Um, there's opportunities for anybody who is going through some hard times. And uh, we're working on more opportunities, more places where people could get help. Every day it's going to be a battle, but one day that you don't get high, 
you're going to see the difference. Your per whole perception changes. You're able to enjoy the little things that life offers. Some of the elected officials said they plan to meet with the people at Phoenix House Recovery to have more in-depth conversations so they can help fix any roadblocks to recovery. Jason Perry, NCD News, New York. A pastor is sharing his journey away from homosexuality was censored by social media. Also targeted, he says, was his faith. Now he's appealing to the U.S. Supreme Court. NTD's Iris Tao has more on the case. So justices of the United States Supreme Court, today I implore, I beg you, take my case. Pastor Jim Dahman, leader of a nationwide Christian ministry, is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to hear an appeal of his lawsuit against Vimeo. He is filing a petition with the high court this week. Don't allow monopolies to destroy America. The streaming service suspended Dahman's account in 2018 for sharing his and others' stories of walking away from homosexuality to pursue their Christian faith. And he changed my heart and changed my mind and changed my identity and brought back to who he originally designed me to be, the man that I am today and have been for the past 10 years. Vimeo cited its policy against what LGBT advocates call harmful conversion therapy. But the pastor's attorney says Dahman, who is now married to a woman and has three kids, was simply sharing his true life story. I mean, his video is not harassing. It's not lewd. It's not filthy, <laughs> you know? This is his testimony, this is his truth. This case, the group says, is another example of how big tech is hiding behind Section 230, which essentially shields social media platforms like Vimeo from free speech requirements governing more traditional media outlets. A perfect example why Section 230 needs to be reversed is because there's videos all over the internet of, I used to be straight, but now I'm gay. They're all over. But if you go the other direction, I was gay, now I'm straight, that goes against the cultural norms of this day, and they're being censored. Dahman's appeal comes after his case was struck down by lower courts, which endorsed Vimeo's immunity, citing Section 230. But Dahman says he's not giving up because it's not just about him. Estates, it's about every American, anyone. The internet companies, like, like a communist, like a dictator, can delete and eliminate you from existence. The Supreme Court is expected to get back to them within a month. Meanwhile, the group says they expect more people with similar stories to come forward around the country. Reporting in D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. A university president is in the limelight after ordering staff to take down cartoon posters criticizing the Chinese regime. Turns out he acted hastily, which he's admitted to, and those supposedly racist posters now have his support. NTD's Miguel Moreno reports. George Washington University bears the name of a president who advocated and warred for free people. Ironically, the university president had staff take down these posters that shed light on an oppressed people. On Monday, President Mark Ryden said he made a mistake. Ryden said in a statement that some community members complained about the posters, citing bias and racism against the Chinese community. He wrote, at that time, and without more context on the origin or intent of the posters, I responded hastily to the student, writing that I too was concerned. Upon full understanding, I do not view these posters as racist. They are political statements. 
Well, this kind of smear campaign against me and my art and frame myself as racist or anti-China is not a stranger to me. This has happened numerous times. Buddy Etzau is the Australian-based cartoonist who designed the Olympics-themed posters and is known for mocking the Chinese Communist Party through his cartoons. The posters in question depicted the regime's oppression of Tibetans, Uyghurs, and others. Buddy Etzau says university students had helped to put them up on campus. And he claims that groups affiliated with the Chinese regime complained about the posters. The students who told me about the incident are still in fear uh, of manhunt against them from those Chinese government affiliated groups, even after the new announcement from GW. I think the university should do more to protect those students who are brave enough to speak up. He shared an image on Twitter of what appears to be an email to students from the George Washington University Chinese Students and Scholars Association. The group accused the posters of having serious racist views and of being a naked attack on the Chinese nation. We contacted the group, but we haven't heard back. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. Transforming, mesmerizing. That's what audience members say after watching a classical Chinese dance performance. Since Saturday, Shen Yun Performing Arts delivered more than a dozen performances throughout the U.S. and Europe. Many say the performance showed them the true China. Here's more. My inner heart was touched. Shen Yun travels the world with the mission to revive the China before communism. Parfait. Divin. Divin. Just took my heart away. So wonderful. My heart jumped with joy to see such a beautiful performance. Oh, I feel just transformed. I think it was just something that's so uh, powerful so that you can experience uh, such a great elevation of feeling. Koshevsky saw Shen Yun for the fifth time with his whole family. He said he appreciates the efforts of the artists. I think it's just such a thrill to be able to experience the, the true China. Very strong, very faith-filled. I think it's very interesting that with the Olympics going on in Beijing, that they would not, the people that we're seeing uh, in, the, in the sporting events would not be able to witness such a powerful performance. I loved it. I especially appreciated the spiritual essence of the dance performances. God, our creator, was really center stage in, in the performance. Um, and so for that reason, I found it quite breathtaking. In ancient China, music and dance were not only forms of entertainment, but also a means of spiritual elevation. Refining one's character and seeking harmony with heaven were natural components of the artistic process. And Shen Yun artists seek to do the same. I think that the name explanation suits it. It was uh, definitely embodiment of the divine, and the dancing showed that very much. I would say that all the dancing, all the emotions, the stories that are told are truly divine work. I can't calm down until now because it's so wonderful, so wonderful, so wonderful. It's divine. It's divine art. It's, there's no word to describe it. Some also said the performance was rejuvenating. My whole body's cells trembled, and for a moment, it was as if we received some kind of soothing emotion that gently caressed us like soft cotton, making people instantly comfortable, relaxed, and feeling good. Peaceful, relaxing, optimistic, and um, generally felt like a coming together of everybody. If someone wants to experience 
truth and beauty and spirituality and be totally engaged by it, transformed by it, um, mesmerized by it, inspired by it, come to this performance. NTD News, New York. Coming up, a U.S.-born sports star has become one of Team China's most popular athletes. This after she won China a gold medal, sending the admiration into overdrive. And in the Olympics, a record-breaking performance and chance for a gold medal in men's figure skating, plus an update on Nina O'Brien after her scary crash yesterday. That and more here on NTD News. U.S.-born figure skater Zhu Yi has faced open disdain in China, despite competing for its Olympic team. But another American-born athlete on Team China is getting quite the opposite reaction. Now she's been cast as China's ideal daughter of the Winter Olympics, after she brought China a gold medal. One of the world's top female freestyle skiers, Eileen Gu won her first Olympic gold medal on Tuesday. I'm so excited. We are the winner. But Eileen Gu isn't competing for the U.S. where she was born and raised, but for her mother's homeland instead, China. Her win lifts China to the top of the medals table. Amid her victory, Gu remained evasive on whether she was still holding an American passport. China does not allow dual citizenship. Chinese media previously reported that Gu renounced her U.S. citizenship at the age of 15. Gu refused to confirm that on Tuesday, saying she feels just as American as Chinese. But that hasn't stopped the Olympics host city from claiming U.S.-born Gu as its own, dubbing her Beijing's daughter after her victory. The Chinese Communist Party's corruption watchdog also released an exclusive interview with her. It's an unusual move as the department mainly focuses on catching and condemning members who have broken Communist Party rules. Other departments under the regime normally unconcerned with sports also praised Gu on their official social media accounts. Gu's followers on Chinese social platform Weibo ballooned to 3 million on Tuesday. Her name also topped the website's trending topics list. She has since become a household name in China and Beijing's poster child for a new type of Chinese athlete. But according to CNN, Gu might be caught up in Beijing's propaganda campaign, showing the world it has the power to attract foreign talent, especially from the U.S. And for Gu, even one wrong move could send her tumbling. The story of another U.S.-born athlete may serve as a cautionary tale. Team China figure skater Zhu Yi took not one but two spills onto the ice during her short program at the Games. She received the lowest score of any athlete for her event. Her flop immediately triggered fierce criticism on Chinese social media. The hashtag Zhu Yi has fallen racked up more than 200 million views in a matter of hours before getting seemingly censored. She had given up her American citizenship to compete for China. Following Gu's victory, Beijing seems to be already expecting more of her. In congratulatory letters sent from China's sports administration and Beijing's municipal committee, Officials expressed hope that she would bring home another gold and, quote, strive for greater glory for the party. And the Winter Olympics Tuesday featured a record-breaking performance in figure skating, a possible gold medal preview in hockey, and an update on Nina O'Brien after her scary cra crash on the slopes. 
NTD's Dave Martin has more. Nathan Shen continued his march toward Gold Tuesday with a record-breaking performance on the ice. Chen's performance opened with a quadruple flip, included a triple axle, a quad flip triple toe loop combination, and ended with Chen punching the air in celebration. His award score of 113.97 set an Olympic record and put him in the driver's seat for gold. The finals of the men's free skate competition will be held Thursday. Canada's women's ice hockey team handed Team USA their first loss of these games, the 4-2 win Tuesday. Canada's Brienne Jenner scored a pair of goals in the win and now has five at these games. Despite the outcome, both teams will advance to the quarterfinals on Friday. These two teams have typically dominated this sport and this year is expected to be no different. Since women's ice hockey was introduced at the 1998 games, five of the six gold medal games have come down to this matchup with the Canadians holding a 3-2 advantage. American skier Nina O'Brien underwent successful surgery Tuesday after a scary crash during her second run in the women's giant slalom Monday that resulted in a compound fracture of her left leg. O'Brien's first run had her in sixth place, but on her second descent, she crashed awkwardly through the final gate and slid past the finish line. O'Brien will return to the U.S. for further care. In the luge, Germany's Natalie Geisenberger won Olympic gold for the third straight time Tuesday, becoming the first to accomplish the feat. Her place as the greatest in women's luge history is now undeniable, with more Olympic golds and more world championship golds than anyone else. And consider this, her 52 World Cup wins are as many as the rest of the Olympic field has combined. Austria's Matthias Meyer repeated as champion in the Super G, edging out American Ryan Cochran Siegel by just four hundredths of a second to do so. Meyer's win made him the first male alpine skier to win gold at three straight Olympics. For Cochran Siegel, the Olympic medal was his first, matching his mother Barbara Ann Cochran, who was a slalom champion at the 1972 Games. Dave Martin. NTD News, New York. Coming up, Meta announced that a billionaire will be retiring from its board of directors later this year. He will be spending more time in politics. And Super Bowl Sunday is this weekend in Los Angeles. Local officials are saying it's a game changer for LA area businesses. That and more after the break. The busiest border crossing connecting the U.S. and Canada remains clogged today. That's because Canadian truckers and their supporters are gathering to protest vaccine mandates and pandemic restrictions on the Canadian side of the border. Traffic was temporarily blocked on the Ambassador Bridge linking Detroit with Ontario, Canada yesterday. The U.S. bound lanes later reopened, but the Canada bound lanes remained closed as of this afternoon. The bridge carries a quarter of all trade between the two countries and it handles around 8,000 vehicles a day. The Freedom Convoy in Canada has spread to the border, including this border crossing. Canadian officials say they are worried about the economic impacts of the blockage. And protesters in Ottawa say they will not leave until the government lifts all pandemic restrictions and mandates. A Silicon Valley billionaire will be leaving Facebook's parent company Meta's board of directors later this year. He intends to invest his time in the political sphere. NTD's Eileen Ang has the details. 
Meta announced that PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel will be resigning from its board of directors after the company's annual shareholder meeting this year. A person familiar with the situation said Thiel aims to spend time helping elect candidates who he believes will advance former President Donald Trump's agenda in the U.S. midterms this year. Thiel was one of the earliest investors in Facebook and joined the company board in April 2005. He became a Facebook investor in 2004 when he provided $500,000 in capital at a $5 million valuation for a 10% stake in the company and a seat on its board of directors. In a statement, Meta founder Mark Zuckerberg said, Peter has been a valuable member of our board, and I'm deeply grateful for everything he has done for our company, from believing in us when few others would, to teaching me so many lessons about business, economics, and the world. In a statement, Thiel said it has been a privilege to work with one of the great entrepreneurs of our time. An autonomous vehicle startup in Palo Alto is planning to solve the trucker driver shortage issue with autonomous trucking through its partnership with Walmart. Gotik delivers groceries and other goods from big distribution centers to retail locations. It has been in a partnership with Walmart since last year. The Palo Alto-based company operates a fleet of 25 autonomous trucks and has pilot programs in Arkansas, Louisiana, and Ontario, Canada. Gotek expanded to Texas last year. You know, we became the first company to operate uh, in a fully driverless manner uh, on a public road um, in a commercial capacity. So improved safety for, um, you know, the truck and the other road users is something that we can uh, offer today. The autonomous trucks use a 360-degree field of view, its software is a hybrid between classic robotics and machine learning-based algorithms. Currently, Gotex trucks avoid making multiple lane changes for safety. They can avoid schools, hospitals, and fire stations. The autonomous trucks deliver online grocery orders from one of Walmart's warehouses to a retail location where customers can pick them up. One of the best ways we can address this uh, growing shortage is uh, by adopting automation. According to Narang, the trucking industry needed 60,000 drivers last year. He expects the demand to grow to 160,000 by the end of this year. Super Bowl week is underway in Los Angeles, and city officials are saying that it's a welcome boost for the local economy. The host stadium is set not only to host game day, but also major events for the coming years. NTD's Jason Blair has more. This coming Sunday, the Super Bowl will be held at SoFi Stadium in Inglewood. According to city officials, it's expected to bring in about $500 million to local businesses in the Los Angeles region. And get this, a half a billion dollars of investment for the Los Angeles area. That is something not only well worth campaigning for, but making sure that we uh, get. On Monday at a press conference kicking off Super Bowl week, Inglewood Mayor James Butts said his city looked forward to reaping the economic benefits while hosting a world-class event. The Super Bowl means millions of dollars in economic benefits for the city, bringing thousands of out-of-town visitors and their credit cards and cash to our local hotels, restaurants, entertainment venues and retail businesses. But said that the championship game at the new $5.5 billion stadium marks the dawn of an exciting new era for Inglewood. He added that the benefit for the city will compound with each subsequent event. SoFi Stadium is set to host college football playoffs next year, will likely host World Cup soccer matches in 2026, and the Olympics opening ceremony in 2028. And this Super Bowl Sunday, the Los Angeles Rams take on the Cincinnati Bengals. Jason Blair, NTD News, California.
The Super Bowl is one of the biggest events of the year, not just for sports fans, but also for advertisers. And while many of us like to avoid watching ads, you could say they're part of the main attraction for the Super Bowl. People aren't just watching to see the Rams take on the Bengals, they also want to see what the commercials companies have spent millions of dollars on. And this year, cryptocurrency exchanges are among the big spenders. What are they trying to achieve? Who are the major players? And what messages do their ads send? NTD's Chenny Wu has more. Lowry. Our next bit by commercial is about missed opportunities. So many Canadians wish they bought tech stocks or real estate just 10 years ago. What's happening again with crypto? Bingo. Crypto ads will be flashing on people's screens this Super Bowl Sunday. This year's ads can cost companies up to $7 million for 30 seconds of screen time. And crypto exchanges like Coinbase, FTX, and Crypto.com are willing to pay despite declining viewership. Canadian crypto exchange Bitbuy will air this commercial in Canada's broadcast. What's happening again with crypto? Bingo. Here's the idea. Kyle Lowry has missed over 6,000 shots in his career. Don't be like Kyle and miss your opportunity again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Seriously? And again, Yeah. and again. Definitely the biggest uh, marketing investment that we've ever made as a company in terms of signing on Kyle and in terms of buying the airtime. But we felt that it's a worthy cause because, uh, you know, the audience is so large. Charlie Aikenhead is the vice president of marketing at Bitbuy, one of the largest crypto exchanges in Canada. Aikenhead says crypto is still in the early stages of growth and Bitbuy is trying to get its name out there. What better way to make a big splash than, um, you know, the biggest advertising day of the year. Cryptocurrency exchanges are places where people exchange normal money for cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and vice versa. The exchanges generally get a small fee for the transactions. I hate to say this, but I do fear there's a great deal of herd mentality here, or the greater fool theory. Fergus Hodgson is the director of Econ Americas, a financial consultancy. Hodgson doesn't seem to be a big fan of crypto. If you're advertising with the Super Bowl, you're going to everybody. Every man and his dog is on there. And so that is, I hate to say it, but suspicious. You're going after people who are not financial experts. But the world's biggest crypto exchange, Binance, isn't advertising during the Super Bowl. It put out this ad featuring NBA star Jimmy Butler. You're going to hear some of the biggest names telling you to get into crypto. But they don't know you or your finances. Only you do. Binance and I are here to tell you, trust yourself and, of course, do your own research. And where can you do your own research? There's a couple places they can go to, one being um, Udemy, and they can go and definitely uh, find a couple of uh, crypto uh, uh, courses on crypto investing. There's Trading Heroes, uh, there's Coin Academy and Cryptoversity, and they could go to several of these. Desh Waragoda is the CTO at the Mortgage Bank of California. Waragoda says the ads remind him of the dot-com bubble back in the late 1990s. I'd definitely recommend reading up and educating yourself before uh, do, um, you know, going into uh, and investing in crypto. The Pew Research Center says 86% of U.S. adults have heard of crypto, but only 16% have actually used it. Chenny Wu, NTD News. If you're in the European Union, you could soon lose access to Facebook or Instagram. Meta warned about it recently. NTD's Evelyn Lee asks why Meta would even think about exiting such a big market. People based in Europe might lose access to Facebook and Instagram. 
Meta said it would pull these platforms out of the EU if it can't transfer user data back to the U.S. But is that really enough reason to give up such a big chunk of its market? Daniel Castro is the vice president at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. He says Facebook needs to transfer data for its basic services, like connecting friends in different parts of the world. Maybe one in the United States and one in Germany, and they want to, you know, comment on each other's pages or, or send messages to each other on WhatsApp or like another's post on Instagram. This is data that's still being transferred transatlantically. But what do these platforms know about you? Social media platforms know about the users' likes, dislikes, um, the type of content they're interested in. Most of the time, they also know when the person is vulnerable, when it's feeling depressed or happy. The EU's data protection law called GDPR was put into place in 2018, but many are still not sure what it means exactly. The EU struck down another privacy pact that regulated intercontinental data transfers, and regulators have been stuck since. But besides big tech, this affects many more businesses. Um, let's say there's a company headquartered in Chicago, and they're trying to um, you know, hire someone who's based in Paris. They can't do that because they can't send the um, HR information back to their headquarters in Chicago. And many businesses are trying to comply but aren't able to because of the way regulators interpret the law. Just recently, an Austrian court ruled that the use of Google Analytics was illegal. So NetDoctor, a website that works like millions of others, as well as the European Parliament's COVID-19 testing website, breached GDPR. You know, you could say that every business is in compliance and no business is in compliance because it really depends on what the regulators say. The existing statutes make it almost impossible for them to adhere to the law by letter. Now, whether or not the regulators come down on them um, remains to be seen. Kevin Curran is a leader of the Cybersecurity and Web Technologies Research Group at Ulster University and co-founder of an encryption service. He says with huge fines in case of GDPR breaches, Meta is looking at its bottom line. Nevertheless, Meta pulling out of Europe seems unlikely to him. Um, I, I just can't see Meta pulling out. It would, it would literally half their market size overnight as such. So. He says it's more likely about politics. Meta owns some of the most used social media platforms in the world. And Curran says lawmakers are wary of that. Evelyn Lee, NTD News. Up next, an investigation shows that more than half of the UK's publicly funded bodies use surveillance cameras linked to the Chinese Communist Party, and the makers of those cameras are accused of assisting in the repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. And Britain says it will back a European Union case against China at the World Trade Organization. The issue is Beijing's alleged trade curbs on Lithuania, which the UK trade minister called coercive. That more on NTD News. Thousands of cameras linked to China's Communist Party's repression of ethnic minorities are in use across the UK. Research by campaign group Big Brother Watch finds Hikvision and Dahua cameras are in use in our schools, police forces, hospitals, and public buildings. This comes after an independent tribunal ruled at the end of last year that the Chinese regime is guilty of genocide against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Here's NTD's Jane Werrell with this report. 
An investigation reveals more than 60% of UK public bodies operate Chinese Communist Party-linked surveillance cameras. Civil Liberties Group Big Brother Watch analysed data from thousands of Freedom of Information requests. They found that three out of five schools use Hikvision or Dahua equipment. These companies are accused of playing a role in the repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, with their cameras having the capability to racially profile individuals walking past them. In addition, 31% of police forces use the technology, as well as more than half of NHS trusts. The Foreign Affairs Committee has recommended that Hikvision and Dahua cameras be banned in the UK, saying in a 2021 report, We recommend that the government prohibits organisations and individuals in the UK from doing business with any companies known to be associated with the Xinjiang atrocities. At the end of last year, a tribunal ruled the Chinese regime guilty of genocide. In response to a question from NTD at the tribunal, Lord Alton spoke of efforts to stop the use of such cameras. I moved an amendment to the Telecommunications Act so that where in another jurisdiction of a Five Eyes country, and I was thinking particularly here of the United States, had banned a company on the grounds of evidence that it had seen of its involvement in the surveillance state in Xinjiang, then we would be required to review their status in the United Kingdom as well. That was not passed, but I still believe it would be the right thing to do. Ministers said that they were with it in spirit, or they should now be with it in practice, and should be reviewing companies like Hikvision. The government hasn't responded in time for deadline. The Big Brother Watch report shows that almost three quarters of UK local authorities use Chinese-made CCTV. But Tower Hamlets Council, where the Chinese embassy plans to relocate, has a different view and says they don't use Chinese CCTV cameras because of the technology's role in suppressing minorities. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. Britain says it will back a European Union case against China at the World Trade Organization over Beijing's alleged curbs on Lithuania. The trade secretary referred to Beijing's alleged move as coercive trading practices. NTD's Joy Duguid brings us more on this. International Trade Secretary Anne-Marie Trevelyan said, We will request to join the EU's WTO consultation into these measures as a third party to ensure we combat economic coercion in trade together. The EU launched a challenge at the Geneva-based trade body last month accusing China of discriminatory trade practices against Lithuania. It says China's actions threaten the integrity of the EU's single market. The EU said China has banned Lithuania imports and is putting pressure on international companies in China to stop using Lithuanian components under the threat of facing import restrictions. The US, Australia and Taiwan have already signalled their intention to join the World Trade Organization's consultations. Lithuania is under pressure from China to reverse a decision last year to allow Taiwan to open a de facto embassy in the capital under its own name. China claims democratically ruled Taiwan as its own territory and has downgraded diplomatic ties with the Baltic nation. The challenge at the WTO allows 60 days for the parties to confer in order to reach a settlement. If none is reached, the EU may choose to launch a formal dispute that would set up a WTO panel to study its claims against China.
The UK's announcement came ahead of Prime Minister Boris Johnson hosting the Lithuanian Prime Minister on Tuesday in Downing Street. Joy Dugid, NTD News. Up next, London's Kew Gardens is hosting its 26th annual orchid festival. And we'll get a look at the over 5,000 orchid blooms on display. And in Russia, a far eastern leopard was caught on film in an area that surprised scientists. It's what's thought to be the first leopard spotting in the area in 50 years. Gardens welcomes back its orchid festival with a Central American influence. Last year's event was cancelled due to COVID restrictions. After a few weeks of intense work, 5,000 blooms are on display, brightening up the late winter. NTD's Neil Woodrow brings us this report from Kew. Inside the Princess of Wales Conservatory here, more than a dozen horticulturists and around 100 volunteers work together to create the 26th annual Orchid Festival. This year, Costa Rica, home to around 1,600 types of orchid, provides the inspiration. The centerpiece is a display representing a Costa Rican sunrise. Organizers say this is the perfect time to celebrate that country's biodiversity, with blooms large and small, as well as endangered species on display. And something like this is always very welcome, when outside it's still quite bleak, rainy and cold, with the garden still sleeping, awaiting spring. You kind of feel eager to have some color, some, something exciting for spring. Uh, and the Orchid Festival arrives and it's just this burst of, of, of colours there and it really makes, makes the difference. Orchids grow on every landmass except Antarctica. Around 70% of them grow on trees. The smallest are only 3 millimetres high, while some can grow to 20 metres. Q's in-house florist Henk Rolling says the diversity is what attracts people to come and view the garden's collection. So it's a huge, very diverse uh, family, and that makes it very interesting. So there's lots of like orchid nuts, if I can call them that, that come specifically to Kew to sort of see the collection, because we have some really special endangered species. Despite covering just 0.03% of the planet, Costa Rica is home to 6% of the world's flora and fauna species. Rolling has helped bring the country's wildlife to the festival with installations made of plants and natural materials, including turtles and the resplendent quetzal, a bird with spectacular plumage that lives in the cloud forest. Scientists from Kew Gardens work with groups in Costa Rica to protect its precious wildlife. Orchids are particularly vulnerable. They are threatened by deforestation and by people removing them from their native habitats for their personal collections, medical uses and food. So worldwide there are probably approaching 28,000 species of orchids um, and for the ones where we know something about their conservation status, which is about 2,000 species that we've done formal 
assessments, then over 50% of those are endangered or threatened. Q and its Costa Rican partners are using DNA to determine how orchids are related to each other so that conservation can be focused on the most vulnerable species. And it seems to be turning the tide. From the 1990s, they've been doing work in reforestation. The high elevation forest will often regenerate quite well if it's allowed to. So it's a question of educating the farmers, educating the land managers. And one thing that Costa Rica was involved in from an, an early stage was in ecotourism. Today Costa Rica is one of the only countries in the world to reverse its deforestation and stop biodiversity loss. The Orchid Festival runs until March 6th. Neil Woodrow, NTD News, Kew Gardens, London. And going to the easternmost part of Russia, a far eastern leopard has been caught on film by camera traps east of the Trans-Siberian Railway and what's thought to be the first time in the area for 50 years. The core of this critically endangered population is concentrated in the land of the Leopard National Park, about 25 miles from the site of the discovery. NTD's Neil Woodrow has more details. No one expected to see this far eastern leopard east of the Trans-Siberian Railway. But 50 years after the species disappeared from this area, Camera traps have caught sight of one here again. The rare animal has come relatively close to the Yazuri Reserve, a specially protected area which is considered an area suitable for the reintroduction of the Far Eastern Leopard. Scientists are now keen to observe the movement of the animals on the potential route from the land of the Leopard National Park to this reserve. A senior researcher at the National Park says they hope to understand where the animals settle and whether they'll stay there or return to the southwestern territory. To get to the new area, the leopard had to cross the Trans-Siberian Railway and a federal highway. This highlights the need to create tunnels so other animals can make the same journey safely. Over the 10 years of the park's existence, the population of the species has more than tripled from 35 to 110 individuals, but it still remains low. Neil Woodrow, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.